Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week. ICRT's roundup of the top news stories from around Taiwan. Today, we'll be covering the last seven days. I'm Keith Manconi of ICRT News. Joining me in studio today is not Gavin Phipps, because he has the week off, uh, but instead keeping me company. Uh, we are happy to welcome back Taipei Times' own Jason Pan. Jason Pan, welcome. Hello, everyone. Jason Pan from Taipei Times. Also joining us, uh, we have by phone today Bill Sharp, who is currently serving as a visiting scholar at the Institute of Taiwan History at Academia Sinica. Uh, Mr. Sharp also follows Taiwan's defense issues quite closely, uh, so we're very happy to have you back on the show once again as well, Bill. Oh, thank you very much. It's good to be back. On the show today, uh, this is one of those jam-packed weeks where uh, there is just so much going on that I'm actually not even going to give a preview of the stories here. Uh, instead, I just want to run through the headlines that we won't be discussing in depth. Uh, so, still worth keeping in your Taiwan News brain box are the following. First, uh, we will not be speaking about former President Ma Ying-jeou's first trip ab- abroad since leaving office earlier this year. He's in Malaysia right now. Actually, uh, just gave a speech yesterday in Malacca at the 8th World Chinese Economic Summit. Uh, so, still relevant, I guess, Mr. Ma. Another story we won't be talking about, uh, except for right here now, 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 is former presidential contender and current PFP chairman James Soong uh, who is also out of the country this week. He is representing the Thai administration at the APEX leader meeting in Lima, Peru. Uh, he actually just arrived yesterday. So, man goes to meeting is the headline there. Uh, maybe more will come of it soon. We'll just have to wait and see. And that labor issue that we've been talking about so much over the last couple of weeks, you know, the one with the seven holidays getting nixed, the 40-hour work week with the one fixed, one flexible day off, uh, well, we will not be talking about that either, but there was some interesting news on that front. There were actual scuffles in the legislature this Wednesday, uh, and following those scuffles came uh, a, a big decision, a bold move. Wait for it. They're now going to send the issue to another meeting. So, breaking news there as well. Uh, we'll all be on pins and needles to see where that ends up. Uh, my money's on more meetings. Probably a lot more meetings. Uh, so a whole lot going on this week that we can't even get to. It's so jam-packed. Uh, you're going to want to stay tuned to all of those issues as they unfold. Uh, you're also going to want to stay tuned to the end of the show because we'll actually be featuring an extended discussion about upcoming proposals to make life a, a little bit easier for foreign-born professionals working in Taiwan. So a lot of stuff going on there. We're going to break it down for you. Uh, but let's start off the show on defense issues uh, as, of course, we've discussed in the last couple of weeks, that uh, that election thing, that whole election thing in the U.S., uh, that, you know, of course, will bring Donald Trump to the presidency of the U.S., uh, well, it's caused a lot of doubt, uh, uncertainty even, about uh, America's commitment to its allies. Uh, and for our purpose, what that means is a lot of uncertainty about what it could mean for the U.S.'s cross-strait policy. Uh, so... Uh, we're going to dig into the news there just a little bit. But before I break that down, I uh, just figure I should check in with you guys. We were maybe like a week in now to getting this news of the Donald Trump presidency. A lot of people are saying uncertainty is uh, kind of the word of the day. Uh, is is that what you're feeling, Jason, right now? A little sense of uncertainty? How are you feeling about all this? Uh, I think in Taiwan, there's uh, yeah, certainly a lot of worries and uncertainty. Uh, not me. I think Donald Trump is a pretty straightforward guy, and uh, Republican 
usually historically has been pretty friendly in terms of defense and uh, protecting Taiwan's uh, you know uh, military regional stability. Uh, in the past, so uh, so a note of confidence there from Jason, yep. uh, Bill. How are you feeling about all this? Well, um, you know, Trump's kind of pretty much of a wild card, but I think the more he gets attuned to what really is involved in being president, uh, some of his uh, campaign rhetoric is definitely going to be dropped. Uh, I'm looking at some of the people he's considering for key <clears throat> oppositions, mm-hmm. uh, especially in foreign policy. I think if he selects John Bolton as Secretary of State, I think Taiwan is probably on good, on pretty solid turf. And some of the other people seem to have fairly con- uh, conservative credentials, like Newt Gingrich, for example. All right, we can we can break that down a little bit more. But the take-home point there is we have two notes of confidence, two conditional notes of confidence. But uh, that's better than what I've been hearing from a lot of people recently. Let's uh, talk about the news of this week. Uh, actually, one of the big things that Donald Trump has come to, uh, out talking about is uh, he wants to see uh, the U.S. allies foot more of the bill for their own defense. Uh, and this would kind of uh, be very meaningful Taiwan. for Taiwan itself because uh, the uh, up till now, kind of the threshold that many U.S. policymakers have set for allies is we want to see 3% of that GDP put towards military uh, uses and Taiwan has been about a, li- a little over two percent for a long time, which is something that uh, past administrations actually have criticized. So there's been some speculation, some little talking head type people wondering what is this going to mean for Taiwan? Could this mean that the U.S. will put more pressure on Taiwan to increase its spending? Well, now we don't need to just talk about the blabbing heads such as us. The National Security Bureau also came out this week and said, yes, indeed, this is a distinct possibility. They will be preparing for it. Uh, NSB officials also said that they believe the U.S. will maintain its basic policy on cross-strait issues. Uh, so that's kind of what they're expecting there. Uh, but, Bill, what, what, what do you think? Do you think uh, that we will be looking at an increase? I definitely think that Taiwan should increase its defense spending. You know, when Tsai Ing-wen was campaigning for office, this is one of the um, uh, parts of her... Of her um, her campaign uh, literature that she wanted to increase the spending. It seems to be this Lin Chuen, that's hold- the premier, who's holding back on this increase. Definitely, uh, 2.2 is not enough. Um, there, there are lots of things that the Taiwan military needs, and especially if they're going to really bring about this all-volunteer system, they're going to need to pump more money into the defense budget. So. Um, this is not going to be a concern only of a Trump administration. It's been a, uh, a long-standing, shall I say, demand of previous administrations. Mayan Joe was not a pro-military person. I think he hurt the military quite a bit, actually, and he really didn't pay much attention to that. So I, as I said, I think it's definitely, you know, uh, I'm supportive of this. It's, I think that the problem comes from Lin Chuen. Mm-hmm. But who knows, he might not be around all that much longer anyway, so we'll see what happens. Mm. Jason, uh, we just heard Bill's take. What's yours? Okay. Um, there, in the press, there has been a lot of uh, reporting about how DPP put in wrong bet. They were going Clinton. But if as things continue, I just want to put a more perspective, uh, perspective is that they are actually, the government, from all the press report and from what people can gather, they're quietly very confident. There's been a lot of uh, links or uh, previous uh, friendly ties with a Republican or in the Heritage Foundation or the conservative sides of uh, and Trump. Uh, one possibility, the other one is the uh, previous, uh, the Republican 
National Co- Committee Chairman mm-hmm. as uh, Secretary of State. I can never pronounce his first name. It's Reince Rance. Yeah, Reince. Reince Priebus. Reince Priebus. Okay. And in fact, he visited the uh, DPP and uh, had talked with uh, Tsai Ing-wen last year. He visited Taiwan. Mm-hmm. A lot of some some of these uh, people who are who will be shaping Trump's uh, foreign policy regarding mm-hmm. Asia and Taiwan particular and cross strait they actually have already been previous in touch with uh, DPP or the uh, you know DPP officials mm-hmm. uh, uh, in a in a cross strait dialogue so mm-hmm. i think the government the ruling government right now is fairly quietly confident they are not definitely not in a panic mode in some of the press so i want you to believe mm. but uh as f- as far as the uh, funding for the military oh, right, goes, do you think right. that that's a, a strong possibility, and do you think it's needed? Yes, I believe so. Uh, in fact, I'll just uh, directly quote from a recent uh, article by uh, my former colleague, John Michael Cole. Mm. He said, uh, uh, what's the Taiwan strategy, strategy for a Trump uh, you know, presidency is spend. Uh, Taiwan must uh, spend more on defense budget. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is to show that Taiwan's commitment, because U.S. Uh, policymaker are going to say, "Well, uh, each you, you gotta, you know, do your own share of uh, military and your own defending. You know, uh, the U.S. soldier not going to come over, you know, and uh, put up the fight if you yourself are not going to defend your democracy." Mm-hmm. And the the other the other proposal is said is that Taiwan, in light of what's happening, build up the regional alliances. With South Korea, Japan, and maybe even Vietnam and uh, mm-hmm. other places, he he uh, canceled up because of a uh, situation with the Philippines. He said, uh, "No, that's not <laughs> going to happen with the Philippines." But build up a regional alliance with, as I said, um, you know, South Korea, Japan, and uh, Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Build up those regional alliances. Yeah. Another scenario that the National Security Bureau uh, rose this week is. You know, if the United States decided to kind of retreat from the Asia-Pacific region, uh, they warned that that would create a power vacuum in the region that China would try to fill and potentially create a lot of uh, instability. Uh, Bill, uh, how seriously oh, I, do you take that? I agree that? with that, and I, uh, I'm not sure if it was in that particular article that you're citing here, but um, it was in some other article I read recently, just in the last few days. But it's been known for a long time. If the U.S. were to do that, its credibility in Asia would be depleted. And not only its credibility in Asia, but it would have global implications or global ramifications. In a lot of countries in Asia, they, they, they sort of pretend like they're not paying too much attention to Taiwan and, you know, they want to be very friendly and on good terms with, uh, with China. Uh, and they're afraid to get too friendly with Taiwan because they're, they're, they're fearful that it'll, it'll in, in, uh, negatively impinge upon their relationship with China. Yet, out of the other side, uh, out of the other eye, they keep a very close eye on what's going on in Taiwan as a kind of an indicator of where American credibility is, what American commitment to the region is. So if the U.S. were to pull out of um, Taiwan, just, you know, totally you know, um, got the Taiwan Relations Act and some of the existing agreements upon which the U.S.-Taiwan relationship is based, it it wouldn't go over very well in Asia at all, especially with the Japanese, um, because, um, you know, the Japanese um, feel very close to Taiwan, and also, um, you know, there there is no U.S. policy in in Asia without this close uh, U.S.-Japanese relationship. 
So I, I don't think the U.S. is going to do that. All right. Well, let's uh, leave that particular issue for now, but uh, stick with defense issues in general and turn to a controversy that was stirred up after a group of retired Taiwanese generals who were recently spotted in a political rally in China. That's not where you want to be spotted. Hmm. According to the Taipei Times, seven retired generals, 12 former lieutenant generals and 18 retired Major generals attended the event in Beijing commemorating the 150th anniversary of the birth of uh, ROC founder Sun Yat-sen. DPP lawmakers were very quick to denounce the attendance, calling it unpatriotic. Uh, And they were also very quick to pass a motion calling on the government to cut off the pensions of these retired generals uh, in question. Later, they kind of uh, proposed an even more sweeping amendment that would cancel pensions for any retired civil servant and any any military personnel who participate uh, in political activities in China. Mm-hmm. Now, since then, some have uh, disputed what exactly we are seeing there in that video. Uh, early reports said that uh, these officers were standing up and singing along with uh, China's national anthem. Since then, Defense Minister Feng Shiquan has said uh, they were not actually singing. They were just standing to be polite. You know, everybody else in the room is standing. How could you not stand, too? So a little bit of a dispute there of exactly what's going on in the video. Uh, But whatever is going on in the video, this is a a very sensitive subject. Uh, And as uh, Jason pointed out a second ago, kind of hints at one of the anxieties in the military, uh, whose allegiance do these soldiers really have? Are they uh, allegiant to the ROC? Are they allegiant to Taiwan? Are they allegiant to the China more generally? That you know, kind of bleeds into mainland allegiance. It's a very complicated question with some precedents there, right, Jason? There's some history. Yeah, uh, the whole thing is uh, throwback to ROC days in the battle days of uh, KMT under Chiang Kai-shek and Jiang Jingguo. They are un- firmly anti-communist. So mm. that's why it really this incident really gets to heart a lot of Taiwanese citizens. That ROC and the KMT is founded on fighting against communism. Mm. That we are on the free China, and in the old days, oh, we will say, oh, they are the communist bandits, you know, uh, Mao Zedong and uh, whatever you have in mm-hmm. China. So, and Taiwan has a very in the past the military is. Is built up upon either you know in the past to recover mainland China, and now later become defending the Taiwan homeland against mm-hmm. the one country who's hostile against, which is uh, a PRC. Mm. So that gets a lot of people really worrying. Are our military are they uh, friendly, cozy up with uh, PRC, the PLA? Mm-hmm. Oh, uh, you know, hey, they have several thousand missile uh, aiming at Taiwan. And uh, Taiwanese people, they should sh- draw a very sharp line. Hey, friend and foe, mm-hmm. who, who's the enemy here? So right. that issue gets to heart a lot of Taiwanese people. Mm. Well, yeah, once again, these are uh, retired officers, so they're not currently serving. But, uh, Bill, I mean, this does, uh, you, you, you can see why people would uh, have some strong emotions about this. Yeah, well, um, supposedly there's a three-year period of time uh, after which a, a anybody from the military retires and not supposed to go to mainland China. But I think that that's far too short a period of time. Mm. Um, some of these folks, you said, uh, lieutenant generals, major generals, and some, um, you know, very high-ranking people, flag-level flag officers. I mean, they, they have held, um, these folks have held very sensitive positions in the Taiwan military. 
and you know to go a step further here, lots of these generals and admirals and colonels and uh, other folks that go to the mainland, they often get involved. They often get recruited by Chinese uh, intelligence services to provide information about the Taiwan military um, plans, strategic thinking, and that sort of thing. And you know, one only has to read the Taipei Times to know that, you know, there are a number of espionage cases that have occurred in the last five years. I think the latest count is like 38, and that's a conservative account. So I think these folks should be barred from going to the mainland, I, I'd even say for 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, um, for, and I'll give you uh, some um, uh, example of that. A friend of mine in the U.S. worked on a nuclear submarine. After he got on the military, he couldn't go to certain countries for 10 years. I don't think that that is an unreasonable period of time. Also, to go a step further, the whole personal security um, uh, operation of the Taiwan military is very shaky. You can, <clears throat> you do not need to have a background investigation uh, to get a security clearance. Uh, that's almost unthinkable in the most militaries of the world. Uh, there is some polygraphing, but not as extensive as it should be. They really need to tighten up in this area they need to ramp up their counterintelligence efforts. Mm-hmm. And um, there have been some proposals where the FBI might provide training to the Taiwan military to ramp up its counterintelligence. But uh, I'm not sure if that's taken place yet, but at least the proposal's out there. What is your sense of what's actually behind uh, the decision of these generals, though? I mean, is is it just a perception that maybe their loyalties are mixed? Or, or, or is that perhaps the actual reality? Maybe their loyalties really are mixed? This uh, goes a lot into the whole ethnic cultural uh, complicated situation in Taiwan because a lot of older KMT they are mainlander they are Chinese who came from China mm. and but their children a lot second third generation are born in Taiwan mm-hmm. their friends they grew up in Taiwan they're schooling so the younger generation of KMT and most DB supporters they are identify themselves as Taiwanese where from Taiwan, but the elder, all these, you know, like Hao uh, Boquan and all these Xia uh, Yingzhou, these generals who still identify them as ethnic Chinese. So mm-hmm. they have a little bit of identi- identifying uh, identification. Of, of course, their family roots are there, mm. but they came with Chiang Kai shek KMT, mm-hmm. that were anti communist. They lost the civil war to Mao Zedong and the PHA. Mm-hmm. So, uh, anyway, it, it, this is a peculiar problem with Taiwan with this uh, you know socioeconomic and uh, uh, political background in the mm. past Cold yeah. War era yeah. basically I, I think I think uh, another perhaps a way to put it is that in the past the mission of the military is quite clear you know opposed the mainland anti-communism but then mm. you know that you know that mission sort of fell by the wayside being mm. friendly to the mainland is okay nobody you know is um, and talking about anti-communism anymore. In a sense, the Taiwan military is kind of trying to, um, you know, assess just what its mission is. Um, a lot of these folks see businessmen making big money in, in China, and they sort of figure out, hey, well, why can't I be on some of the action, too? Mm. All right. Well, we should mention that uh, Premier Lin Tran also came out and criticized uh, the retired officers uh, and also called for clear regulations on, uh, you know, what sort of trips would be allowed and what sort of trips wouldn't be allowed and by whom. Uh, So we might get some of the answers to these questions that we've been asking uh, in the future. But we got two more stories to get to before we hit the break. So let's jump to the next one and actually jump straight into the scariest term we've heard all year. Nuclear food from Japan. 
Sounds like a weird comic or maybe a, a Godzilla spinoff, uh, but it's actually very serious, scaring a lot of people here. Uh, if the political rhetoric around this issue is any gauge of how people are feeling. We're talking here about uh, moves made by the administration to potentially pave the way to ease food imports from the five Japanese prefectures uh, that have not been allowed to import to Taiwan since the 2011 uh, Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant disaster. So just to give a little bit of background here, there is so much to this story. So I'm, I'm really just going to do the very bare minimum, but there's, there's a lot going in here, so I'll do my best. Uh, the background here is that food imports from Fukushima, uh, uh, Baraki, Tochigi, uh, Gunma, and Chiba prefectures have been banned in Taiwan since uh, March 25th of 2011. Last year, of course, this issue came up in the news when it became clear that some of the food coming into Taiwan uh, from Japan were actually from these prefectures, but had the labels had been changed to make it look like they were from Tokyo instead. Mm. So people are already very primed to be suspicious of any food coming from Japan. Uh, now that it looks like the uh, administration may be thinking of easing up these restrictions you know, the suspicion is already there. Uh, so when the administration tried to hold uh, a number of hearings on the issue to explain uh, the policy uh, of loosening these regulations, those hearings very quickly dissolved into chaos, uh, pushing, fighting, really not a lot of hearing actually going on. Uh, and uh, with uh, many of the protesters accusing the government of just try uh, basically holding shows, they're not actually looking for real public consultation. Uh, they're just holding these to pave the way to push through this uh, policy. Uh, the premier has responded by saying that he wants to reduce, you know, these restrictions gradually, uh, maybe hold off on uh, allowing stuff in from Fukushima, the most uh, nuclear contaminated region, maybe, you know, start with a couple of other regions, kind of ease into it. But people are still very suspicious. A bit of context uh, that we should throw out there before we, you know, go any further with this story. Taiwan and China are the only two nations uh, that maintain a ban on food imports from these Japanese prefectures. So most of the world has said, you know, we are we've we've ascertained that these regions, their food is safe now. We will import it. Uh, but still, obviously, uh, a, a, a lot of skepticism here in Taiwan. Uh, I saw a KMT poll. I mean, who who knows how seriously we can take this? But according to a poll that came out from the KMT 70% of Taiwan is actually opposed to uh, the imports from these regions. Uh, so, Jason, maybe you could give us some sense of why is there so much skepticism here? In Taiwan, um, we have experienced in the past years a lot of food-tainted scandal. And yep. uh, this become part of that background thinking that consumers, oh, no, tainted food, uh, nuclear uh, things. So, uh, of course, you know, Taiwan is very close to Japan. So when that earthquake and that nuclear disaster happened, Taiwan is uh, relatively, you know, uh, geographically also a lot of news and we mm -hmm. see that nuclear disaster and that. So that image is very fresh. Mm -hmm. um, but having said that, uh, uh, the way government uh, want to present is that the food has been uh, inspected, they've been mm -hmm. scientifically tested and in fact they are being sold in Japan. Mm -hmm. What's Okay for Japanese consumer, it should be okay for Taiwanese consumer. That's mm -hmm. what the government is, uh, you know, the policy is. And in fact, right. they, they want to promote free trade. Yeah, right. Lin Chen say, well, you want to ban Japanese food and we're actually violating or uh, some free trade uh, uh, agreement or some uh, 
regulations. Well, maybe this is another example of、uh, Trumpism invading Taiwan, but it seems like that free trade argument is not very popular here.、Uh, it sounds like, just based on what I've been reading, is that when people hear, you know, we need to、uh, maintain these、uh, international standards, these free trade standards, what they hear is. Our government is selling us out. They're going to give us tainted food、uh, for the sake of maintaining good trade ties with Japan. They're basically giving a good deal to Japan and sticking nuclear food in our on our dinner plates.、Uh, so you know, it seems like people are, are are really not. They don't have a ton of confidence in what the government's telling them. I think that's true. I think that you know, food is really a sensitive issue. It seems not only in Taiwan but also in Japan and also in South Korea.、Um, it, it's always a very very sensitive issue. I think particularly so in Taiwan, since Taiwan has a sort of、um, how should we say ingrained、uh, aversion to anything nuclear.、Uh, just the word nuclear will set people off. I mean, you can just look at the huge demonstrations when they, you know, talking about energy and how Taiwan should be more dependent on nuclear energy. People generally don't support that. And then when you mix food with possible nuclear.、Um, You know, contamination. That's that's、mm-hmm. a that's a recipe for、um, for conflict.、Uh, having said that, if you scratch the surface,、um, the government are saying that a lot of these、uh, public hearing they've been disrupted.、Uh, there wasn't a、uh, constructive dialogue or a public consultation, but they were really whipped up by politicians like、uh, KMT opposition party. And in fact, there was a news report, even TV footages of. Gangsters and、uh, so there's、uh, there are reports of organized crime、mm. and and why is that? Because there's money, there's,、uh, you know, money interest in Taiwan. A lot of the、uh, say fruit and food distribution and some、uh, some of these、uh, food companies they are have organized crime tie or they are、mm. they are business interest. So they do a lot of say corrupted practice, say um, uh, uh, label ch- fixing label or、mm-hmm. using tainted food. So、yeah. a lot of goes back to bad business practice, and people are fearful. But that was in you know that's you know mama hoo hoo that, that kind of a, the uh, attitude that you know they they could just、uh, sell food you know past days or use tainted food.、Mm. But I think if you know is. It's okay for European consumer and for Japanese consumer. It should be okay for Taiwan. That's what government is saying. Yeah. Well, it does seem like this is an is yet another issue that's gotten politicized very quickly. I I I don't want to name names, but it does seem like some politicians are being somewhat opportunistic about this and taking it as an opportunity to. Well, okay. Let's come out and say it. The KMT said that if the DPP allows this to happen, they would be、uh, they would be premeditated homicide against the people of Taiwan. I mean that this, this, the rhetoric the rhetoric is. Uh, nuclear, shall we say? I mean, it's、uh, it's it's way over the top, but way over the top. That's yeah, the way to put it. yeah.、Uh, but anyway,、uh, actually,、uh, we should move on to close out the first half because we have one more story to get to.、Uh, and here again, we have yet another story. I, I think it's like three stories so far today, where we have、uh, the DPP trying to move forward、uh, a policy issue and massive protests, massive anger, and fisticuffs breaking out,、uh, mostly over procedural issues. I mean, people are getting into fistfights over procedural issues. But let's break this one down. Gay marriage came back into the headlines in a big way just yesterday.、Uh, lawmakers held a committee meeting to discuss proposals to amend the civil code to legalize same-sex marriage. That meeting was disrupted by protests and stiff opposition from KMT and PFP lawmakers. A little bit later in the day, the parties kind of compromised and agreed to hold two public hearings in the coming weeks. 
Uh, I think a lot of advocates for these reforms see that as quite a bit of a setback because in the past, these sorts of public hearings were mostly just stalling tactics and and prevented laws from moving into more meaningful, you know, legislative proceedings. Uh, Outside of the committee meeting, meanwhile, there was a crowd of something like 20,000 people. Uh, I, I, I think a lot of folks in Taiwan maybe underestimated the level of... Uh, the level of opposition to gay marriage. Uh, you know, earlier we had seen crowds in the hundreds for these anti-gay marriage rallies. 20,000 yesterday were outside the legislative yuan, uh, and some of them actually managed to break into the legislative yuan. And Jason was there. You saw the whole thing. Yeah, I was starting in the morning. They uh, bought two, uh, uh, two straight days of advertisement on a major newspaper, and they, mm-hmm. were gonna, they held a protest yesterday starting at 7 a.m. in the morning. And I was really surprised the size of it, and I was surprised by the solidarity of across-the-board religious groups. There were Buddhist mm-hmm. groups, Christian groups, Catholics, and there were even a lot of uh, groups who usually don't see eye-to-eye each other, like uh, the more Taiwanese, native Taiwanese groups, the Presbyterian Church, and there are like Lin Yang Tang, who are more of a mainlander Chinese, the Christian. Mm. They were all there, and there was also Aborigine Mm. Groups they came by bus very early in the morning from mm. mountains from southern Taiwan, mm-hmm. so I think DPP may have underestimated some of the. Uh, I'm not saying there's uh, the uh, opposition to it, but there are a lot of concern, mm-hmm. and that there's uh, maybe public consultation will be a good thing because their their expression of uh, concern that was not reflected in the public uh, debate so far. Anyway, I was in the legislative uh, committee which was dealing with the issue, but I also went out for the protest. And mm-hmm. I was, it was sort of live reporting. It was, um, uh, it was, uh, I, I was like uh, in an action movie, in mm-hmm. fact, because there was fighting fisticuff inside mm-hmm. between legislature. And about 2.30, just past 2.30, there was, we heard a commotion outside. Mm-hmm. And there, then someone yelled, uh, they're mm-hmm. storming inside. Yeah. Then, like, it was pandemonium for a sec, uh, you know, right that second because a lot of the photographer and press will look at each other and we will run outside mm. and uh, see what's happening. And there was, it, it, it looks like hell broke loose because people running around, police were chasing. But then it, it sort of, police managed to confine them to just back of the legislative chamber and there was mm-hmm. about four, 60 of them. Mm. And there were, you know, uh, a lot of ministers and priests, they were conducting pep rallies and a lot of prayers and mm. some of them kneeling on the ground. Mm. So uh, at first, the news, Taiwan press was saying, oh no, it's a sunflower movement, they're going to occupy. Oh. Mm-hmm. But fortunately, it all ended peacefully. They mm-hmm. left, departed toward the evening and that uh, legislator compromised. Mm-hmm. Okay, instead of holding a whole, they were, uh, the PAP and the KMT, they were saying, oh, we must hold 10 public hearing meetings in the legislature, plus 30, uh, something like 30 across Taiwan. But anyway, they compromised. The DPP said, okay, we'll hold right. two. So, uh, right, right. The original, uh, the original request was to hold 30 meetings yeah. across the country. They talked him down to two. Uh, still, as uh, though, as I said, uh, seen by advocates as a fairly major setback. Mm-hmm. 
led up for the legal end of all of this. Of course, there there, there is a little bit of legal complexity going on here. Uh, the thing that they were supposed to be sorting out yesterday was which of three proposals they were going to use or, you know, how would they formulate the actual act? Would they take bits and pieces from these three proposals? As we've said before in the show, there is a proposal from the KMT, there's a proposal from the DPP, uh, and there is a proposal for the uh, NPP, the New Power Party. Um, It sounds like advocates are most in favor of the DPP version for uh, a number of reasons, Uh, but uh, the the other ones are generally acceptable. It's moving in the right direction. Uh, To help us get a little bit of a handle on the legal aspects of this, I actually spoke recently to Bob Cow, who we've had on the show a number of times. He uh, is the writer behind the Taiwan Law Blog, and he broke down for me the difference between these bills and uh, what the stakes are for this issue. Well, the DPP bill is the the shortest uh, by far. It um, it actually uh, uh, instead of changing all three bills would change uh, the civil code, and um, because that's the the law that deals with marriages and inheritance and adoption. And the DPP bill, instead of changing the language of uh, husband and wife uh, to a gender neutral term spouse, it. Um, it adds a provision saying uh, all legal provisions that refer to husband and wife uh, will apply to all couples, regardless of sexual orientation or regardless of the gender of uh, uh, the 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 people in in, in the union. So, in in effect, it would make all the husband and wife provisions uh, applicable to same-sex couples, um, and and um, it also adds a provision that. Uh, bars discrimination based on gender, uh, sexual orientation, sexual identity, gender expression uh, uh, for adoption. So so parents, uh, same-sex parents would not be discriminated against when they want to adopt. And the MPP and DP, I'm sorry, the MPP and KMT bills are much longer. They'd actually go through the civil code and uh, change each instance of husband and wife to spouse or uh, mother and father to to both parents, um, and there's some, some slight differences between the two versions in, in that uh, some, uh, one of the, they in, each include provisions that the other doesn't. But it, overall, it's it's pretty similar. I think the DP bill is favored just because it's easier, and perhaps there would be fewer excuses for opposition lawmakers to. Uh, to come up with because you're only looking at, I, I believe, five or six provisions and that's all that needs to be discussed. Whereas if you're looking at the all the different amendments, uh, the KMT can can come up with excuses for each, each amendment um, and that would stall the process politically. Uh, so, Bob, before we actually turned on this mic, it sounded like you were saying that you are uh, actually not too optimistic uh, about the future of these proposals. What are you looking at there? Well, these these public hearings are going to be contentious. Uh, there's there's definitely going to be protests and counter protests outside, uh, just like the, the 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 protests that were happening outside the hearing today. Um, it's going to be divisive. The language is going to going to be hurtful probably um and this is actually one of the 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 uh reasons the dpp raised uh, uh, their negotiations today that the longer that this drags out the, the more divisive this issue will be the, the there's going to be more contention society is going to there'll probably be more uh anger and 
in the society and the two sides are probably going to be at odds uh, uh, even more. Um, it's going to be hard. It's a, it's a hard road. It's it. You know, there are a lot of people that were very optimistic and thought this is it. Uh, marriage equality is going to happen. Um, and um, it doesn't look that way, uh, par- partly because of the, the unreasonable demands of the KMT, the uh, uh, certain KMT legislators, obviously one of the bills is a uh, uh, sponsored by the KMT. The arguments by a lot of Christian groups that uh, just are not based on facts or logic, um, but also I believe based on the lack of leadership from President Tsai Ing-wen and perhaps uh, the Ministry of Justice through her. I think at some point she's going to have to say something or do something um, that's that's a bit more supportive of the bill I, I don't believe her 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 statements so far uh, have been that strong uh she's she's really said she'll let the legislative UN work this out and uh at some point i she's gonna have to to step up um, otherwise this will drag out uh, for a long time uh even though even though there was an agreement that this bill will or one uh, one version of, the, of of this bill will come out of committee at the end of this uh, this session, this, which would be the end of December. Um, who knows what, 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 what other tactics are going to become of uh, the KMT legislators are going to come up with. All right. So a, a bit of a pessimistic note there. Uh, Bill, have you been following this whole issue? I haven't followed it that closely, but I always thought that, um, you know, what seemed to be uh, a very avant-garde position on gay marriage in Taiwan is, um, you know, was really to Taiwan's credit, but it looks like there's much broader anti-gay um, marriage support than than possibly people thought. Mm. Yeah, and uh, Jason, I mean, would you share the, the, the view that uh, may, yeah. there's probably... Yeah. A better chance of this not passing now than passing is that is that what you're seeing? Yeah, I believe so. Now, uh, seems to be a public sentiment saying DPP is uh, moving too fast on this issue, and there should be more public consultation. You, you have to consider that Taiwan has been uh, from since the old days. You know, at least a uh, KMT education and uh, their political system is uh, where a Chinese Confucian society and that traditional family value. Mm. On the other hand, Taiwan has been moving very fast in the last uh, two, three decades as a fast-moving, forward-looking uh, democracy. So, well, the first the first uh, gay pride parade was in 2002, I think. Yeah. So, yeah, very fast, like you said. Yeah, uh, Taiwan has been uh, really a freewheeling uh, sort of uh, democracy that seems to be model for a lot of East Asian countries. Mm, I, I think that's a good point. Uh, mm. and that's, that's more or less what I was trying to get to as mm. well. Mm-hmm. I, Taiwan had become sort of um, had a very avant-garde position on gay rights, right. gay marriage, and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, we are coming up on a break now, so we're going to have to leave that issue right there. When we return, we're dedicating the whole second half to those strange creatures, the white-collar foreign professionals. You know, like uh, me and Gavin. And then Bill, probably, uh, also as well. Some big changes may be on the horizon for folks such as us. uh, And we've got a guy who's going to break it down for all of us uh, in a legal sense. So do stay tuned for that when we return to Taiwan This Week. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week, ICRT's weekly roundup of news from around Taiwan. I'm Keith Manconi. Uh, up next, we've got an issue to discuss that affects folks, well, folks just like me. 
Uh, these would be regulations for foreign professionals in Taiwan. There's a lot of folks that fall into that category that uh, feel that there's problems in the current system from uh, insurance and pension issues to resident status for their children. Uh, it's, it's been a long-standing set of issues that a lot of people have been hoping the government would address. Well, now the cabinet has said that they're coming out with an amendment to address some of these issues. Uh, and I thought that uh, now would be a good time to break it all down, uh, as this is something that we really haven't uh, discussed too much on the show before. Uh, so, obviously, I'm not going to be entirely objective in this thing, because these are regulations that affect me personally. But, uh, Jason, you're here to keep me honest, all right? <laughs> all right. Welcoming on to the show to uh, help us break this down, we have Michael Fahey of Winkler Partners. He actually provides legal consultation for Forward Taiwan, which is a group that's been advocating for some of these reforms. Uh, so we're very happy to have him on the show so he can help us uh, understand uh, what is kind of a complicated issue. So, uh, Michael, thanks for being here. Thank you, Keith. Good to be here. All right. So tell us a little bit about uh, what the executive yuan uh, might be cooking up right now. Uh, this was a bit of news that came out a, a, about a week ago. Uh, this segment kind of got preempted by the Trump campaign, but uh, Trump win. Uh, but it's good to be uh, readdressing it now. They were kind of vague in the first couple of statements that they came out with. We weren't 100% clear with what the law is going to look like, what it's going to be. Uh, just based on your interactions with the National Development Council, uh, I know that you're in touch with them. Uh, what is your sense about what we should expect here? Well, you're talking about the National Development Council's uh, recent announcement that they're going to draft a new law, particularly to deal with foreign professionals. And that's kind of a new thing. Uh, before that, back in August, uh, the National Development Council uh, presented a very wide-ranging set of proposals to the executive UN. Uh, and then there was this letter by Ralph Jensen, the father of uh, 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 four children who've grown up in Taiwan uh, and explaining their problems, which he wrote in Chinese to the United Daily News. Mm -hmm. And immediately after that, there was a big reaction from the National Development Council, and they said they were going to have this mm -hmm. law that was going to hopefully solve all of our problems. So a letter to the editor really does work. <laughs> uh, in, I think if it's in Chinese, it really can have a big effect. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so run us through some of the issues that you think this law might take on. Well, uh, some of the most important issues are uh, permanent residence for highly skilled professionals, uh, mm -hmm. which is something that uh, should be available. And uh, second one is work rights for spouses and possibly also uh, the children of uh, permanent residents or ARC holders in Taiwan. Uh, the issue of spouses has been a big issue for a long time because professionals come to Taiwan and their spouse can't work, and that often causes them to leave Taiwan. So that's kind of been in the works for a long time, but it seems like that's really going to happen. Uh, the specific proposal that we've heard is that uh, spouses will be able to work uh, part-time in a Class A professional and technical job. Uh, they can receive a salary. They must receive a salary of 200 NT an hour. But, very importantly, the company they work for has no minimum capital or revenue requirements, uh, which has been a big problem for finding employment in the past. Mm. Okay, so those are some of the, the, the bigger issues that you're looking at uh, on that front. Uh, speaking more broadly, you said that there's been a lot of activity since about August. Are, 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 are there other sort of regulation issues that are also kind of percolating in the background? Absolutely. Uh, just last week, uh, and this is connected to the proposals that were made in August, 
uh, just last week or a week or two, uh, a new draft regulation was put forward to allow permanent resident holders to become part of the new retirement system. That's the portable retirement system where your employer pays 6% of your salary each month and you get to take it where you go. Previously, uh, only the spouses with ARCs of Taiwanese citizens were eligible for that. Uh, but now all permanent residents apparently are going to be eligible for that soon. So that's a big development for us. All right. So uh, up till here, we've been mostly talking in terms of the policy issue, but let's uh, put a human face on it. So uh, it sounds like a lot of these things really affect uh, the families of professionals living and working in Taiwan. So tell us what issues the families have been facing and uh, why your group believes that uh, some of these fixes are necessary. Well, we Taiwan's objective here is to attract more foreign talent. It's trying to do this yeah. along with another, a number of different Asian countries. And we think that their focus is a little bit uh, incorrect. What they need to do is to take care of the foreigners who are already living in Taiwan, who will then themselves tell people what a great place Taiwan is to live, and then other people will come. Unfortunately, uh, permanent residents started in about 2000. And since then, there are about 12,000 permanent residents. And a minority of those permanent residents are people who have families. They may be married to other people who are not Taiwanese nationals, so their children are not Taiwanese citizens. There's an increasing number of these people, and these children are growing up in Taiwan, and they have two problems. One is the spouse cannot work, and the second one is the child, when they reach the age of 20, uh, can't work either. Uh, so they're they're faced with a situation where uh, they're not really able to have a meaningful path to permanent residency or possibly citizenship in the future. And these numbers are just going to increase as time goes on. So it's time to address this problem now. Mm. And so are, are, are people really facing the prospect of uh, having to leave Taiwan? Is it uh, – what, what, what is this meaning for families? Well, what this means is that uh, when you turn – when a child who's grown up in Taiwan, let's say they've been here for 10 years or they were born in Taiwan, when they turn 20, they can apply for an extension of residence for three years, and they can apply twice. So that allows them to stay in Taiwan until they're 26 years old. However, they can't work. So they end up just depending on their parents, and most of them leave anyway because they can't have a meaningful life. More importantly, because they can't work, they can't meet the financial requirements for permanent residence or citizenship. So they don't have a meaningful, meaningful path to citizenship or permanent residence in the country that they grew up in. That's the main problem. Mm. Now, Jason, you've done a certain amount of reporting on this issue as well. Uh, share a little bit of your perspective. Yeah, um, this particular family, uh, uh, Jensen's from uh, Germany, the mm -hmm. uh, family of five. That's how they got the whole thing started. They, uh, the father wrote in, and they, it's a very particular, uh, quite impact in uh, Taiwan media and uh, society. Now, their family of five, because of these restrictive ROC laws, mm -hmm. five member of family are living, uh, they have to go out and uh, living. Uh, Taiwan when they grew up adults I did uh, I interview uh, Christina Jensen um, she she was uh, she grew up she came at, in Taiwan very young age and the fact we, we she was went to the school and uh, she speak Chinese uh, very well in fact mm -hmm. uh, when t her friends said oh she speaks just like one of us she's uh, when she speak English she's got a Taiwanese accent mm. and but She's forced to leave, I think, upon 18, uh, mm -hmm. because um, the ROC law prohibit her from, uh, anyway, getting, uh, as a foreigner, 
from getting job without two year experience or and they in fact in fact they restrict the the salary that you, you, they must get a a salary a wage at mm-hmm. forty seven thousand NT. So and it's kind of like a chicken. What comes first, the chicken or the egg sort of problem? You can't get a job yeah. uh, unless you've already had a job. So yeah. create some problems there. Yeah. When I. Uh, uh, interview her, talk to her, and uh, it was really a very sad, uh, uh, kind of emotional for her because she mm-hmm. said she loved Taiwan. All her friends are here. She want to uh, work and continue living, having a you know meaningful life and working in Taiwan. But because of a law, she's forced to leave. She had to find somewhere else and is, and have to leave her brother and her family uh, behind in Taiwan. So it's it's very very uh, sad hu- human story and. Among my my foreign foreign friends in Taiwan, many of them are married here. Some are with uh you know uh, with Taiwanese uh, having a family here, so mm-hmm. they are forced to leave because of issue and there's children also separation. So I think it's time for Taiwan uh, government DPP now to uh, face this and uh, amend the law. Mm. All right. Well, one group that uh, brings a different perspective to this issue would be the New Power Party, the NPP. Uh, they have been fairly consistently. Uh, skeptical of these sorts of reforms, uh, you know, where we might see more inclusivity, uh, more ability to attract foreign talent. Uh, they see what could potentially be a threat to the wages of local workers. Uh, they've said that, you know, Taiwan's white-collar workers, the office workers, they already face extremely low wages, and uh, bringing in foreign workers into the mix could put that uh, more in danger, could push the wages even lower. Uh, Michael, what do, what do you say to those sorts of concerns? Well, I would say that uh, the, the, basically this goes back to last year in December when uh, the outgoing Ma administration had a very broad proposal to uh, relax minimum wage requirements. And it's the minimum wage issue which has really attracted people's uh, attention. There was a proposal that some white-collar workers would be on a point system and they would not have a minimum 48,000 NT salary. And this provoked not just the NPP, but uh, also uh, one Lin Shufen from the DPP was very opposed to this as well. And I think for them, the main concern is the minimum salary. They see that as something that protects Taiwanese workers. Our main response to that would be that the numbers are very, very small. Mm-hmm. Just to clarify, we're talking about a minimum salary that must be given to a white-collar foreign worker mm-hmm. in order for them to be hired in a Taiwanese company. That's right. The basic rule is that for ordinary foreign professionals, the minimum salary is about 48,000 NT. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's significantly uh, a it's above market for young people. Mm-hmm. It's probably below market for more senior people. Mm-hmm. Right. And so basically you're saying your argument is very few people would come to Taiwan for a salary less than 48000 Precisely. Even if that was taken away, that floor. Precisely. And, and Forward Taiwan has always advocated that there should be quotas on particular countries. So, for example, there might be many people who would be interested in coming to Taiwan from India or the Philippines to work for 25000 NT a month. Mm-hmm. There should be a quota on those nationalities to make sure that uh, we don't have a repeat mm-hmm. of the experience that Taiwan has had with blue-collar workers, which is really the focus of the MPP's concern. Mm-hmm. You know, over the past 20 years, we've gone from zero blue-collar workers to 600,000 migrant workers in Taiwan. Right. And quite legitimately, they see that as having a big effect on the wages of Taiwanese workers. They're worried the same thing will happen with foreign professionals. And I agree. If it's not managed correctly, it could happen. 
Uh, they'd also be concerned that some uh, blue-collar workers would be misclassified as white-collar workers and therefore, uh, you know, be let in to do jobs that uh, really would threaten, you know, blue-collar local workers. Yeah, there's there's tremendous concern with this possibility of people, you know, hiring people as white-collar workers and then actually having them work in a factory or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, two years ago, in uh, July of 2014, Taiwan rolled out this point system for foreign graduates of Taiwanese universities. Mm-hmm. And under that system, there was no minimum salary. You mm-hmm. got points for, like, speaking good Chinese, maybe having a master's degree. Mm-hmm. There was a whole – if you got 70 points, mm-hmm. you could get a work permit. Yeah. About 2,000 people took advantage of that and got work permits, which increased mm-hmm. the number of foreign professionals in Taiwan. Yeah. However – they caught nine people who were applied for the minimum wage, 20,000 NT. And there were a couple of uh, Burmese overseas mm-hmm. Chinese who were caught apparently working in a factory. This is a very small number mm-hmm. of people. We're talking 10 people out of 2,000. Mm-hmm. But as a result, the Ministry of Labor in mm-hmm. September backed up and said, okay, we're going to reimpose a minimum salary for foreign graduates. It's going to be a minimum of 31000 NT per month. Mm-hmm. So we're kind of two steps forward, one step back sometimes. Mm-hmm. Let's get to the, I guess, the broader issue here, because uh, you're saying that, you know, one of the goals that Taiwan should have is keeping the white-collar foreign workers that are already here as a way to attract more uh, foreign professionals. Why, why is it something that you think Taiwan should uh, really be pursuing? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Uh, I think the Taiwanese government is too focused on economic issues, attracting highly skilled people who Taiwanese companies are not likely to pay enough to come here. What Taiwan attracts, Taiwan attracts people who want to live here because it has a good lifestyle, not because it's a great place to have a job or a great place to build a career or that sort of thing. So Taiwan needs to focus on the people who are already living here, uh, who like the lifestyle, but are hampered by kind of these outmoded regulations, which are preventing them from living a, a, a normal life here. Mm-hmm. And if Taiwan did that, we would, re- we would attract a lot more people, I think, from the region, people in China, expatriates who are tired of living in the pollution in Beijing and would like to put their families here in Taipei. Mm-hmm. And even more broadly, people from the Silicon Valley, San Francisco, they visit Taiwan. They love it. Mm-hmm. It just needs to be easier for them to live here. Mm. and for their families to live here. Mm-hmm. So start at home, fix the problems you have here, you know, and then worry about high-class mm-hmm. foreigners or this kind mm-hmm. of thing later. Mm-hmm. Mm. And have you been able to keep up any kind of a dialogue with uh, the NPP or other folks that might be more skeptical of this sort of policy? Is, is, is there uh, talks going on between your group and, and, and folks that may see some danger here? Well, I think that uh, last until last year, until the last election, we were mainly focused on working with, uh, you know, the Ma administration and the executive branch. Mm-hmm. Now that the Tsai administration has come on board, we've shifted our focus to the legislature and we're working with both DPP and KMT mm-hmm. legislators. And, and I think the MPP is actually a pretty diverse group of people. Uh, Freddie Lim has come on board for some of our proposals. Yep. So, so I don't think there's a, a block of opposition from mm-hmm. them. Uh, they, they have a particular issue, which is the minimum wage mm-hmm. issue. Other than that, I think they're pretty open-minded. Mm-hmm. So there is a, there is an ongoing dialogue with the executive branch, with the legislative branch. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we do need to do is reach out to some of the labor unions and talk to them uh, mm-hmm. to make them understand that we're not really uh, their enemies or anything like that. Uh, and I think that we can make a lot of progress by doing that. Mm-hmm. 
All right, so this is a, a law that uh, will be at least proposed uh, hypothetically within the next couple of months. Could you, for folks that uh, are really concerned about this issue, want to see where it's going to be going, what should they be looking for over the next couple of months to you know, keep their eye on the prize here? Well, the uh, National Development Council says that this new law governing the recruitment and retention of foreign uh, professionals will be put on the web at the end of this month. So I would look in early December uh, to see that law and see the details of what it actually says. Forward Taiwan will have a detailed summary uh, probably sometime after that in case you don't read Chinese. Uh, and we'll probably have some you know, feedback on it and there'll be a public announcement period. So the really key point is uh, early December, the new law draft will be out and there will be an opportunity to comment on it and people need to speak up then and uh, pay attention to the details. Mm-hmm. All right, we have been speaking here to Michael Fahey. Uh, Michael, thanks so much for breaking this all down for us. No problem, pleasure. All right, and uh, we are leaving that story behind and moving to our podcast bonus story. Now, of course, uh, for our podcast bonus story, we generally try to, you know, look at the lighter side of news, find something on the that you don't need to take too seriously. Uh, and we're going to be talking about here uh, a little bit of news that involves Hanhai Precision Industry Chairman Terry Goh. Mm, he is floating the idea of maybe becoming president. Maybe, maybe, maybe. Uh, And a lot of people in Taiwan are connecting this to the recent Donald Trump win in the U.S. Now, I did say that we generally try to not take these stories too seriously, but maybe today we should take it a little bit more seriously uh, because, you know, obviously a lot of people waited for far too long to take the Donald Trump campaign seriously. So maybe this will be our serious uh, podcast bonus story. But uh, just to catch everybody up who uh, is not aware of this news, Earlier this week, Next Magazine published a report uh, that the night when Trump appeared to be winning the election, uh, Mr. Goh gathered several top-ranking executives for a meeting to discuss strategies in response to uh, the possible impact of a Trump victory. So they were expecting, like, oh, you know, Donald Trump won. What should we do? Is that going to help our business? Is that going to hurt our business? That's what they were expecting. Instead, what they got was a kind of testing the water Mr. Go apparently asked these uh, gathered executives, what would you think of me running for president in 2020 in Taiwan? Now, of course, these yes men said yes. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. You'd be a great president. People would love you. Uh, and uh, and so that's where the story kind of stands at this point. Um, is, you know, the, uh, the feelers are out there. Now, uh, th- this is a report, I guess it's a, a leaked report that uh, Next Magazine got. Uh, I believe a number of reporters have tried to get in touch with uh, Mr. Go, and he hasn't confirmed or denied anything, uh, as far as I know, so far. Um, but what has happened later in the week is uh, a number of uh, surveys came out and kind of pitted uh, Mr. Go against other presidents, uh, including Tsai Ing-wen. Uh, the one that pitted uh, Terry, well, Terry Go against uh, Tsai Ing-wen reportedly, now again, uh, how seriously do you really want to take these uh, these little surveys, but reportedly said that 70%, something like that, would favor Terry Go over Tsai Ing-wen. So that's a, that's a favorable position to start from, four years before the election is actually set to take place. So, uh, Jason, how seriously should we be taking this? Well, it's uh, there's a lot of aspect to this. I think when I heard of this uh, news coming out, I thought it was pretty funny. But, but 
KMT are getting very seriously. They see him as a savior for KMT. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You can see how K, uh, the KMT party is very low on the poll. They, they basically uh, have a very, uh, you know, uh, a lot of problem. And they say, hey, Terry Cole, he's rich and he's Taiwan's Trump. He's going to take us out of wilderness and back to power. So that's the take. And a lot of people seem to be saying, hey, Terry Cole, wow, if Trump can, why not in Taiwan? So that- Why not in Taiwan? They're going to laugh their way all the way to the presidential office. Uh, Bill, uh, have you been following this story? Yeah, this is pretty interesting to me. Um, I, you know, I, I think when it comes to Trump, I, you know, I think uh, being um, a developer is one thing. Being a president is another, especially when you're the president of a development company that's you know, pretty much family-held, and I don't believe they trade their stock publicly. You get to be president, you have to deal with a whole lot of constituencies, and the job is more complex than it seems to be. And I, I think maybe that's the situation with Terry Gould. He's a highly successful businessman, actually, according to Forbes, he has more money than Trump. But running a company and running a government, it's a whole, it's a whole different game, whole different game. And I don't think some of these guys realize that. I mean, I remember when Ross Perot, another highly successful businessman, was running for president in the U.S., I forget exactly which year that was, that he seemed to overly, overly simplify all these complex problems. Government deals with very, very complex problems. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, uh, with a, uh, it has to satisfy a lot of competing constituencies, especially when you try to do that in a pretty volatile political environment like Taiwan, where people are prone to protest and speaking out and storming the legislature <laughs> or whatever. Um, it, it, it's a different game. Mm. Now, I'm not sure that he realizes that. You know, mm. what does Terry Guo really stand for? I mean, he's big on cross-strait relations, right? Mm-hmm. Well, this is a problem with the Guomindang. The Guomindang is often perceived as, as, as its only policy being cross-strait relations. Mm. Um, and what, I mean, he's sort of a person that's responsible for a lot of the hollowing out of Taiwan's economy. Mm. Yeah, moving a lot of those factories yep. over to right. China. Right. Is he going to bring his jobs back to Taiwan, all those production jobs? <laughs> if that was a campaign pledge, would that even be legal? Hey, like me president, I'll, I can personally bring back 20,000, 30,000 jobs. Okay, so a lot of people are comparing uh, Mr. Go to, you know, President Trump future pres- president-elect mm-hmm. Trump. Got to get used to that. Uh, but how, how, I mean, how deep does this parallels really go? Uh, I mean, he, okay, so he's a billionaire. That's one similarity. Is there anything else? Yeah, he does. In, in Taiwan society, uh, at least the media build him up as a straightforward talking man. Mm-hmm. He speaks directly with, with no, not beating around the bush, like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Trump. And also saying, well, he could uh, bring, uh, build up the economy for Taiwan. But uh, and also like Trump, he he seemed to be like at, at, at least on the first level that he's uh, popular with a lot of people in the polls. But in Taiwan, <laughs> the netizens, a lot of them are facetious. Uh, I'll just give you know they will they will they will rig up a poll. I'll, I'll give you uh, you know one example: Xiong Lian, mm-hmm. who was running for you know uh, Taiwan uh, Taipei uh, mayor, mm-hmm. and a lot of netizens go to him by. 
uh, voting on online polls say, ah, he'll be the best candidate, but mm. they're working behind him. That, that's a really good point. The other thing is, too, look at Sean Lin. Why, I mean, when he was running for mayor of Taipei, what did he? What was his policy? Oh, well, you elect me, and then we'll have good cross-strait relations, and we'll bring all this money into Taipei, create jobs. Mm-hmm. And that didn't sell. That didn't sell at all. Whereas uh, Ko Wenzhou, he had a broader-based mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, platform. I believe that Charlie Guo running for president would be a sort of a reflection of Sean Nian running for a Taipei mayor. But having said that, the, the other the other aspect is that Terry Guo, if you break it down, uh, he doesn't have all that a good reputation in in terms of his business practice and. Uh, in that, in in the industrial uh, the kind of his running. Well, that would be another parallel with uh, Mr. Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Number one is a lot of say uh, because uh, anyway on the online a lot of people saying, well, hey, if Mr. Guo become Taiwan president, we'll be working in a sweatshop, you know, working twenty four hours a day, and uh, we're, we won't be getting that two days off a week. He mm. is very known as a sweatshop and uh, you know working hard mm-hmm. and. Uh, he's known his company are known as his manager top down military mm-hmm. style of mm-hmm. uh, uh, supervision and uh, yeah. punishment yeah. and a lot of say workers jumping off buildings in Foxconn right right right, right. If, if you look at the factories that he operates in China I mean there's lots of labor problems there mm-hmm. yeah. alright well uh, m- Mr. Mr. Guo, if you're listening, we are taking your candidacy seriously. That was a serious discussion on your serious maybe candidacy that may or may not happen. So uh, nobody can accuse us of not taking it seriously. But uh, we are going to have to leave that conversation for now. We have three more years, three and a half more years to talk about possible presidential runs. So uh, the, the, the fun never stops. The fun never stops. But the show certainly does. Please do join us again next time. Taiwan This Week broadcast every Friday evening during the 8 p.m. hour right here on ICRT FM 100 right about 8.15 p.m. You can also find an extended version of the show online at the ICRT website on iTunes couple of other places as well. If you know podcasts, you'll know where to look. Signing off from the ICRT studio, I am Keith Menconi, joined by Jason Pan. Thank you, Jason. Good evening. Thank you very much. And Bill Sharp. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. See you again next time on Taiwan This Week.